Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store. Orleans Cape Cod. Birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By L.L. Bean. Inspiring you to get outdoors. LLBean.com. By Celestron. Offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels. Celestron.com. By Birds and Beans Shade-Grown Bird-Friendly Coffee. Birdsandbeans.com. And by Chimani. Visiting a national park? Let Chimani guide you. Chimani.com. Good morning. Welcome to our show number 639. That's the bird we featured on last week's show, the Connecticut Warbler. We described it, pointed out how a Sean Connery character misidentified it in a major motion picture, and talked about the fact that it's named for a state where it's not often found. But we've since learned something new and quite amazing about the Connecticut Warbler, thanks to a story in the August issue of Birdwatching magazine. The story quotes bird biologist... Emily McKinnon about new evidence that the Connecticut accomplishes feats of migratory flight similar to those of the black pole warbler, which is a North American migration champion. The new research shows that, like the black pole, the Connecticut warbler travels long distances nonstop over the Atlantic Ocean on its journey to its South American wintering grounds, flying for at least 48 straight hours over the bounding main. And that's only part of the trip it makes on its way to those southern latitudes. These changes in latitudes, changes in attitudes, nothing remains quite the same. Yeah, Jimmy Buffett sang about latitudes, but never about longitudes. Maybe that's because he could rhyme latitude with attitude, but still hasn't found a word that rhymes with longitude. That's a hard one. Well, birds not surprisingly, know how to figure out longitude going east and west. And we'll learn some fascinating stuff about how they do that on next week's Talking Birds show. little teaser there. Meanwhile, a lot of people are trying to figure out exactly what Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke has in mind with regard to the status of our national monuments. That national monument name is a little bit confusing, I think. It really means a protected area, not just an object, similar to a national park, but created by presidential proclamation. In a draft report that he'll present to the president, Mr. Zinke is recommending shrinking the boundaries of a handful of national monuments, although he stopped short of suggesting the elimination of any federal designations. He suggested on Thursday that the president reduce the size of at least three national monuments. Oregon's Cascade Siskiyou National Monument and two in Utah, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments. Here's a quote from the secretary. The recommendations I sent to the president on national monuments will maintain federal ownership of all federal land and protect the land under federal environmental regulations and also provide a much-needed change for the local communities who border and rely on these lands for hunting and fishing, economic development, traditional uses, and recreation, end quote. It's the idea of shrinking the size of the monument's areas and the uncertainty of what kind of economic development he's talking about 
that has many conservationists on edge. Mr. Zinke declined to say whether portions of the monuments would be opened up to oil and gas drilling, mining, logging, and other industries. And his review has raised concern that protections could be lost for areas that are home to ancient cliff dwellings, majestic sequoia trees, and deep canyons, as well as ocean habitats. Several groups have vowed to file lawsuits if the president attempts to make any changes that would reduce the size of monument areas or rescind their designations. There may be some big battles ahead about this, so we'll stay tuned and keep paying attention. Well, that rather unusual sound is our mystery bird. And this is a little preview of our mystery bird contest coming a little later in the show. So you can get ready to call in and have a chance to win the beautiful Droll Yankees feeder and a bonus prize of a big bag, a big bag of bird-friendly, shade-grown birds and beans coffee. Our mystery bird is a dark-plumaged seabird with a blunt tail and a black bill that flies on stiff wings with few wing beats. The wingtips almost touching the water as it soars over the waves before diving for fish and squid. Our bird's common name describes its flight and also makes it sound like a dirty bird. That would be our mystery bird contest coming up in just a little bit. Meanwhile, welcome to our latest Talking Birds ambassador, Julia Ray from La Crescenta, California, right on the edge of the Angeles National Forest there. She says she wants to share our show with members of her Audubon Club. Thank you so much, Julia. A little bit about Julia. She's a musician who performed professionally and taught music for many years, earned a doctorate from UCLA. She's now retired and able to indulge in her birding hobby. And she says she became interested in birds. This sounds like a musician because she enjoyed birding by ear. Thank you so much, Julia, for becoming a Talking Birds ambassador. And by the way, a quick visit to our Facebook page after the show today will reveal a map showing our ambassador states hand-colored in a beautiful shade of green. So Talking Birds listeners, kindly check to see if your state is decked out in green and consider representing it as, as an ambassador if it isn't. Of course, whether your state is showing that color or not, we hope you'll join our ambassadors program. Hand out some of our info cards to spread the word about our show and birds and conservation. Easy to do and easy to sign up for. Just click on the contact button at TalkingBirds.com and choose the Become an Ambassador option. Contact button. Choose the ambassador option at TalkingBirds.com. Still to come on our show today, lots of folks include the American kestrel, formerly known as the sparrow hawk, on their list of favorite birds. And lots of folks are troubled by the dramatic decline in the birds' numbers. We'll try to find out the reasons for this decline and what might be done about it when we talk this morning with American Kestrel Partnership Director Sarah Schulwitz. Plus, Mike O'Connor will tell us a cautionary tale about uh, hot weather a bird feeding and bird seed. And up next, a bird that provides a big surprise when it opens its wings to fly. It's today's Talking Birds featured feathered friend. Presented by Birdwatching Magazine for more than a quarter century, Birdwatching has been North America's premier magazine about wild birds and birding. Charles, will it? Will it what, Margaret? And will who? Or what? What? Well, in this case, Charles... Margaret was not asking a question. She was pointing out a bird, a large sandpiper called the willet. It's not the flashiest-looking shorebird, grayish overall, dark gray bill, long gray legs, until it flies. 
Then it shows bold black and white flashing wings when seen from above or below. It gets its name from its loud ringing call, Pill Will Willet. It's the only North American sandpiper whose breeding range extends southward into the tropics. And in Spanish-speaking countries, it's also named for its sound. And its proximity to the beach, they call it Playero Pihuiwi. And here's what it actually sounds like. Oh, by the way, DNA research has reassigned the Willet's genus. Its old biological name was Catotrophorus semipalmatus, and its new name is Tringa semipalmata. What? What? It's today's Talking Birds featured feathered friend, the plain gray shorebird with the bold flashing wings, the Willet. Thanks again for being with us. It's our show number 639, and uh, we hope you'll visit our website to find out more about our show and stuff like that at TalkinBirds.com. And uh, do follow us on Facebook and Twitter at TalkinBirds, no G, in Talkin'. Well, the American kestrel is a favorite bird of many for its beauty and color and its feisty, even fierce countenance. Many folks still refer to it by its previous common name, Sparrowhawk. And indeed, the specific part of its scientific name, Falco sparvarius, means pertaining to a sparrow, thanks to its small size, as well as the fact that it sometimes hunts birds like sparrows as one of its prey items. But whatever we call it, the bird is in decline by up to nearly 90% in some parts of the U.S., That's since the mid-1960s. Scientists are trying to understand the decline and figure out how to reverse it, and helping them to do that is the American Kestrel Partnership. And the partnership's director, Sarah Shulwitz, joins us on the phone right now from up around Boise, Idaho. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Ray. How you doing? Doing well. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Sarah. I know it's early out there in uh, in Idaho, but but you're you're not in the... um, you're not at Pacific time, as most people would think, including me. You, you have a little loop there. No, we're not. We kind of make a, a loop around <laughs> to include Boise and Mountain Time. All right. Well, the American Kestrel Partnership, founded, I believe, in 2012, Sarah, in response to the decline in kestrel populations with a plan to work with scientists and citizens to learn the causes, if possible, and, and maybe find some solutions. What do we know at this point about these declines? Yeah, that's exactly right, right? So, um, like you said, uh, this species is declining. Um, it has declined by up to 50% on average across North America. Um, and the real question is, we don't know why this species is in decline. There's been lots of hypotheses um, that people have looked into, and so far, nothing is coming out as kind of standing out as a smoking gun. Um, so... Uh, in 2012, the Peregrine Fund launched the American Kestrel Partnership to start to try and figure out um, why this bird is in decline. So we've got partners across North America that install and monitor and maintain nest boxes. Kestrels mm-hmm. are a cavity nesting bird, and they will readily take secondary cavities, so man-made nest boxes. Mm-hmm. So we can put up nest boxes, and this bird will nest in the boxes um, so we can have a way to go up and monitor breeding populations. So our partners put up boxes, they monitor them, 
they send us their data each breeding season so we can start to put together what may be happening, at least on the breeding ground. Mm-hmm. Well, this uh, bird, I know, has a huge range, if I'm not mistaken, from Alaska all the way down to Tierra del Fuego, uh, southern tip of South America, and in four distinct populations. Now, your number one recommendation to scientists, if I have this right, has to do with migratory connectivity. Could you tell us what that means and why it's so important? Absolutely. Um, so one one thing that we are starting to, to get evidence for is that um, these birds may be having trouble away from their breeding ground. So research is starting to show that um, reproductive success is generally okay, even in some of these really severely declining populations. And so evidence is starting to point to maybe something's happening on their wintering grounds, maybe something's happening on their migration grounds. Um, And so one of our recommendations is to look into where these birds are going um, during their migrations and how they are getting there, which routes they're taking to get there. Um, So the American Kestrel Genoscape Project is uh, led by Dr. Julie Heath out of Boise State University. And this is going to tell us a lot about where these kestrels are going, where they're spending their winters, and which migration routes they're taking to get there. So what we do is we are able to sample birds across the breeding grounds to determine where the different populations are. And on uh, let's see, the populations I'm talking like on a genetic level. So where the genetic differences exist to show um, where, you know, one population begins and uh, one population kind of um, ends. And so we can look at the DNA to see where, or we can see what stands out as unique for each of these populations. And then with that information, we can sample birds' feathers as they're caught along their migration routes and in their wintering grounds, and we can match them back to different breeding populations. And in this way, we're able to create a migration map to see where it is that populations breed, where they winter, and which routes they take to get there. So in a way, we're kind of playing this genetic connect the dots mm-hmm. um, using feather samples. and. That is going to be able to, to to help us figure out where it is the most severely declining populations are wintering and how they're getting there. And then we can go to those places and see if we can identify threats to kestrels. You have some other plans here or some things are happening with, with regard to farming, if, if, if I'm right, uh, Sarah, with incentives for farmers to put uh, kestrel nest boxes on their farm, uh, controlling insects, rodents, fruit-eating songbirds. Is that is that going to help? Yeah, so this is certainly a question that deserves more research. Um, So early research is promising. Um, A study that just came out by Dr. Megan Shave and Catherine Lundell out of Michigan State University, um, they looked at the effects of kestrels in cherry and blueberry orchards in fruit-growing regions in Michigan. And their findings were promising. First of all, they had excellent grower participation in the study itself. Secondly, they had great kestrel participation. So the kestrels used the boxes that were put out on farms and had high reproductive success. Um, And what is really interesting is that where kestrels were present, they found that there was a reduced abundance of fruit-eating birds, such as American robin. Uh, And these 
findings were important to farmers. Uh, they suggest that there could be beneficial economic impacts of having kestrels on orchards, at least in the fruit growing regions of Michigan. So moving forward, um, it is important to note that this is a case study. Um, so we'd like to know how other landscapes and other farm types, such as farms with row crops, may respond to the presence of kestrels mm-hmm. um, on their farms. For example, perhaps maybe was this combination of factors such as the farm type, the species presence, the climate, uh, and the surrounding habitat unique for that particular study so that it produces beneficial outcomes? Or might we expect that, uh, might we expect and see similar results on other farms and in other landscapes where perhaps kestrels are generally good to have on farms mm-hmm. um, in reducing pests. Um, you're, you're looking for help for, from citizen scientists, uh, I, I know, Sarah, but not necessarily in terms of putting up nest boxes. Is that right? Or, or, or what should we do as uh, regular folks to, to help out? Well, um, that is a great question. And, we, I mean, we are looking to um, have folks that if they are putting out boxes, that they are committed to checking and and, um, monitoring those boxes and sending us their data. So Mm -hmm. just putting a box up necessarily isn't the golden ticket. Um, For example, other research that we've um, produced does show that kestrel or just putting up nest boxes in general may not help a population, for example, if it leads to increased abandonment of a box or if it increased or if it leads to increased mortality of the birds using those boxes or um you know if it attracts competitors such as european starlings um so we certainly encourage folks if they have boxes out there um to monitor them send us their data that way at the minimum we'll be able to see what's going on um who's using the box um is How's the reproductive rate in the box? How do we get started um, uh, getting involved? Uh, Sarah, website uh, where folks can go? Sure thing. Um, so with the American Kestrel Partnership, that folks can go to kestrel.peregrinefund.org, and they can become a partner under the community tab or on the main landing page. Um, and on our website, folks can find lots of information from plans on building boxes, nest box blueprints, all the way to instructions on how to monitor and what our recommended protocol is and instructions on how to actually work as a team. For example, if somebody wanted to be a team leader of several volunteers, they can kind of give out the permissions to check the different boxes and they can keep tabs on how their team is doing and making sure they're monitoring and submitting the data. Mm-hmm. Um, also, our citizen scientists are a huge contribution to the American Kestrel Genoscape Project. By having folks spread out across the continent, we are able to do so much more than if we were just individual researchers on our own Mm -hmm. um, trying to collect all these samples. Sarah Schulwitz is director of the American Kestrel Partnership founded in 2012 by the Peregrine Front. Sarah, thank you so much. Keep up the great work, and we'll look forward to uh, updates uh, down the road. Thanks so much for having me, Ray. Have a great morning. Coming up, it's our Mystery Bird Contest in just one minute. 
talking birds, we're for the birds. And we want to say thanks to another Talking Birds ambassador who's helping to spread the word about birds and conservation. I'm Yvonne Birch-Hartley, and I'm calling from Glendale, California. I listen to several birding podcasts, but my favorite by far is Talking Birds. I like being an ambassador because it's a perfect opportunity for me to share my enthusiasm by bird of, word of bird of mouth. <laughs> Talkin' Birds listeners, we hope you'll become a Talkin' Birds ambassador. Just visit our website, TalkinBirds.com. Click on the contact button and then choose the Become an Ambassador option. We'll send you some info cards to hand out to your friends and neighbors. That's the contact button at TalkinBirds.com. And thanks. It's our Mystery Bird Contest and you are eligible to win as long as you haven't been a winner here on Talkin' Birds in the last six months. And here is our all-important phone number, 781-837-4900, 781-837-4900. We have a beautiful Droll Yankees double suet feeder as our prize this morning and a bonus prize of a big bag of bird-friendly shade-grown birds and beans delicious coffee. Uh, let's see. Oh, the sound of our mystery bird. Yeah. Not a sound we'd be all that likely to hear, but this is part of our mystery bird contest, so there it is. Here are some clues. Our mystery bird is a dark-plumaged seabird with a blunt tail and a black bill. It flies on stiff wings with few wing beats, the wingtips almost touching the water as it soars over the waves before diving for fish and squid. Our bird's common name describes its flight and makes it sound like a dirty bird. That is our mystery bird, 781-837-4900 is the number to call. Meanwhile, we're going to check in with uh, Mike O'Connor talking about, well, dirty seed or, well, how to take care of seed in the summer for the bird seed, that is. Let's ask Mike in just one minute. Now a word from our friends at Birdwatching Magazine. For over a quarter century, Birdwatching has been North America's premier magazine about wild birds and birding. Want some tips on backyard birding? Birdwatching Magazine has published a handy booklet that's yours to download for free. The 16-page guide includes practical field-tested answers to your most important questions about the birds in your backyard, from food to birdhouses, from those cute hummingbirds to those troublemaking birds. Go to birdwatchingdaily.com to get your backyard Q&A booklet. More than 100 million wild animals are killed each year illegally. Poaching is a major threat to our country's wildlife. I'm Tom Barry. I'm an actor with a desire to preserve living space for wildlife. The Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust does just that. Works with private landowners to protect wildlife, to preserve natural habitats. To learn more or to work with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust, call 800-729-SAVE. That's 800-729-SAVE. Or visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Thank you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some bird-feeding banter with the boss of the backyard, Mr. Mike O'Connor, down at the famous Bird Watchers General Store on Cape Cod. Good morning, Mike. Hello, Mike. All right, Tim, we don't seem to have Mike there. Can you find him for us by any chance? Maybe he hung up on us again, but... Uh, Try the red wire again. I hear something. I hear something. <laughs> I don't know who you are, but you're going to have to fill in for Mike. Uh, put it. Right. Put another dime in the slot, Ray. It'll work. <laughs> I don't know what our topic is this morning, other than your half-price sale on those Eclipse viewing glasses. But, yeah. uh, we... <laughs> We're marking them down. They're not going as fast as they did last week. I don't know what the story <laughs> what is the on that. The deal is that people are just tired of it, I guess. But <laughs> we, no, seriously, on. we are talking about on. bird seed in the summer, right? It can be a, a well. It can be a problem if it's not handled 
properly, right? It can be a little bit of a problem in the summer. So, uh, bird seed in a lot of natural products that aren't treated, you know, um, you know, the food that we eat is, is a little bit is taken care of a little bit differently. But natural products in bird seed and sometimes pet food aren't really treated that well. And so when they bring the food in from the fields, they can contain eggs of meal moths. And they lay dormant, but in the summertime or when they get hot, they can hatch. And so I, I run into a lot of folks who have trouble with meal moths in the summer. Meal moths are harmless moths. They can get into your kitchen and into your grains and pastas and crackers in the, in the kitchen. So you don't, if you can store your seeds, store it in an outbuilding, a shed or a garage or away from your kitchen. And move the seed, especially in the summer, quickly. You know, get get as much as you're going to use in a few weeks. Don't buy it because it's on sale. A lot of places have seed sales in the fall, and the reason they do that is because the seed was picked last year, <laughs> and they want to move the old seed. So yeah. just kind of pay attention to that a little bit, and use your seed which you're going to use quickly because these moths from the warm weather, they'll hatch, and they can spread into your seed. And again, they're harmless, but they'll get all webby and wormy, and it's a little disgusting. And then they'll come in and yell at me like it's my fault. It's your fault. It always comes back to that. It's your <laughs> fault. That's and when you, if you have, a lot of people store this seed in like a garbage can or yeah. a trash can or a bucket, and that's fine, but rinse that out each time you refill it because a lot of people will just put their seed bags in there and then the, the seed that's built in, those those bugs are going to get in there and they'll grow and infest your, your, your fresh seed. So it's all about kind of keeping an eye on it and rotating it, but above all, don't blame me. That's really the takeaway here. That's what it comes down to. All right. That's right. Rotate that seed, keep it clean, and uh, everything will be cool. That's right. And Even if you need some, you know, uh, Eclipse glasses, I got plenty for you. All right. Is it 50% off or are you going to cut the price <laughs> even more? While they last. All right. Well, you know, here in the Northeast, we're going to have uh, the totality in 2024, right? Parts of New England. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. It wouldn't be on Cape Cod because the sun always shines there, so it couldn't <laughs> Even happen at night. there. See you next week, Mike. Okay. You got it. There's a part of our world that we pay little attention to. An ant drags a seed five times its own size, and a bee sips from a drop of dew. And down here, toxic chemicals and carcinogens are leaching into our environment. They come from objects that we look past every day, littered cigarette butts. Every one is a tiny, toxic waste site. Let's stop the toxic litter. Learn more at RethinkButts.org. Back here to the Mystery Bird Contest, trying to identify this mystery bird here, dark plumage seabird uh, with a blunt tail and a black bill. Fishes for squid and fish, uh, diving uh, after soaring over the waves there. All right, that's our mystery bird. 781-837-4900 is the number to call. And we're going where, uh, Tim, to, um, I'm not sure which is our first call here. Uh, let's uh, let's try uh, Tom in Weymouth, Massachusetts. Good morning, Hello. Tom. Hello, Tom. Yes, how are you today? Doing well, thank you. How, how are you? I'm doing well. The weather's great. It's it's pretty nice, isn't it? Yeah, I like yeah. to be a little warmer, but you know, yeah. Well, nobody's complaining. We're in the what do you mean the low seventies? I think around here, right? Fall's coming, so it is indeed. What do you think, uh, Tom, on the uh, on the mystery bird there? I think it's the sooty shearwater. A sooty shearwater is absolutely correct. Nice job, a dirty bird indeed. Yeah. Hey, um, by the way, we've uh, talking to Mike earlier today. Uh, I think it was great shearwaters they were talking about, and they're seeing them by the thousands right near the beach 
Um, in the Wellfleet area, I believe, on Cape Cod. Unfortunately, they're also finding a lot of deceased shearwater. So we're going to have to find out about that and talk about it uh, maybe on next week's show. But that's a little bit off the topic, Tom. You are the winner of our Mystery Bird Contest. And would you like to try our... Um, our, what do we call this? Our bonus question. I think we have time for this. Okay. All right. This is for Birds and Beans Coffee. This is a, this is a, um, it's a, what we call a multiple choice question. What are a cob and a pen? What are a cob and a pen? A, two types of bird feathers. B, an adult male swan and an adult female swan. Or C, a corn thing you slather butter on and a ballpoint thing that stains your shirt pocket. It's one of those. I think, would be. I think it's number two of the swans. Uh, an adult male swan and an adult female swan. Absolutely correct. Cobb and a pen. And we're going to send you that beautiful birds and beans coffee, Tom, as well as that droll Yankees feeder. Very good. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Tom. We Thanks. are out of time for our show. Thanks to Mark Duffield, Debbie Bleacher, and our engineer, Tim McKenney. I'm Ray Brown. See you next week. <laughs> Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store. Orleans Cape Cod. Birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By L.L. Bean. Inspiring you to get outdoors. LLBean.com. By Celestron. Offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels. Celestron.com. By Birds and Beans Shade Grown Bird Friendly Coffee. Birdsandbeans.com.